G'day and welcome to The Yarn here on Radio Fodder. I'm Fia Walsh. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the unceded land on which I'm recording today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Here on The Yarn, we showcase some of the best reporting from the graduate journalism courses here at the University of Melbourne. My guest today is Master of Journalism student, Harry Sekulich. Harry, welcome to the program. Thank you, Fair. Happy to be here. You recently published a story on a public forum, Wreckage to Reform on Country, which was hosted by the National Climate Emergency Summit. So in the piece, you detail the panel's argument that native title reforms could be key to boosting Indigenous communities' ability to care for the climate. Harry, who was on the forum panel and how does native title relate to climate change? So we had a panel of three speakers, all who zoomed in uh, for the summit. First of all, we had Kata Muir, who is the chair of the National Native Title Council and a Wati man um, and Nigalia traditional owner from the Western Australian Cultural Block. Uh, which is just north of Kalgoorlie. We also had Dr. Emma Lee, who is a research fellow at the Swinburne University of Technology and a Trueway woman from Tebrakuna country in northeastern Tasmania. And then finally, we had Nolan Thompson, who is the former CEO of the Kimberley Land Council and a body man from Western Australia. Uh, and interestingly enough, he withdrew, Mr. Thompson withdrew the Kimberley Land Council from the National Native Title Council in September last year, saying that the Native Title Council lacked teeth. This kind of came up when it, uh, we would discuss, oh, sorry, we, the panel were discussing uh, native title and we had Mr Muir and Mr Thompson coming from pretty different angles in terms of what native title can do for Indigenous land reform and Indigenous land management, uh, which was a very interesting kind of uh, introduction to this issue, which obviously speaks to its complexity. And I think it's worth mentioning as well that uh, native title encompasses only one aspect of Indigenous land title as it is. Uh, The former is specifically all land under the Native Title Act, which is the national level legislation, um, whereas Indigenous land title covers all forms of Indigenous land ownership. So when it comes to climate change, Indigenous land management and climate change interact in the way that Indigenous land knowledge is very much focused on conserving and managing land in traditional ways in the sense of looking after country. And Mr Muir actually talked about uh, resource extraction as a focal point, uh, especially since uh, in the wake of Yukon George, Gorge, sorry, uh, the destruction of the rock shelters last year. It's very much a point of interest and very much a good way to come at this issue because it was a total demolition of a cultural heritage site. Yes, so sorry to interrupt, but you're you're speaking about the the destruction by Rio Tinto of the 46,000-year-old 
heritage sites, I believe, and these were like Rio Tinto illegally destroyed them. Is that right? I actually looked a little deeper into this and there was an agreement struck, but the uh, issue was that the Indigenous Land Council and the relevant uh, traditional owners were not given the equal bargaining power um, in these agreements. And so, uh, and Mr Muir obviously referred to the fact that in this very uneven relationship, companies like Rio Tinto, who have actually framed themselves as being very empathetic and very, very um, careful when it comes to um, addressing these issues in the past, was actually able to go ahead and demolish this site in a way that was definitely not respecting the terms of the uh, traditional owners. And Mr Muir talked about extraction in the way that Indigenous peoples come to the table offering a sustainable and traditional insight into sustainably extracting, whereas these companies are very much exploitative in the way in which they go through with these extraction processes. So this uneven relationship, uh, uh, uneven relationship of power is one of the central problems in native title. Can you talk a bit about why current native title laws do leave Aboriginal communities hamstrung in their ability to care for the climate? The uneven relationship doesn't just end, well, it doesn't even just to show itself at the uh, table of arrangements, but it's a whole structural process that Mr. Thompson especially referred to um, during the panel in the sense that Indigenous land owners and traditional owners are just not included in any of the decision-making processes when it comes to engaging with industry and government um, to discuss land in the first place. They're not approached in the most appropriate way. And this is obviously encompassing a host of spiritual and cultural issues that underpin this relationship, uh, which he further delved into but he also referred to the legal complications of native title. And as a federal law, these are very onerous and long drawn out legal processes just to gain recognition. And one of the great, uh, one of the biggest, most significant issues that the uh, panel pointed out was just the mere fact that this can only really gain recognition. And at the end of the day, this, sometimes isn't enough to protect cultural heritage sites. And this is only part of the discussion that these in traditional owners have with uh, mining companies or government. Yeah, so native title is overrided by other legal systems. And I know another problem is that it doesn't, it only recognises the specific Aboriginal group that was granted the native title rather than recognising other Indigenous people in the area. And also the native title holders aren't able to pursue any economic opportunities on that land. So for Indigenous people who are, often have limited resources, this can really stop them from gaining uh, more capacity to help the land itself. But there is a lot of potential for native title. I know if we look 
globally, indigenous lands make up around 20% of the Earth's territory, but they contain around 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity. So if we're looking at climate change, this is obviously a really significant portion of, of the world's land. And why is climate change something that is a particular concern to First Nations people? I know it is something that affects all of us, but people often talk about the particular vulnerability of Indigenous people. Can you explain a little bit about why that is? So the panel discussed in Australia in particular some of the issues that we're seeing in particular Indigenous communities across the across the continent. So particularly when it comes to rising tides in the Torres Strait or increasing temperatures in the Western Australian desert. I know that Mr Muir particularly was speaking to um, the experience of communities in those areas um, experiencing just much hotter, drier conditions. And these are, as was referenced, these are mostly populated by Indigenous communities. And so they're particularly vulnerable. Their particular vulnerability, I think Mr. Muir also went back to, was a, from a socioeconomic standpoint. And the fact that these communities are just not equipped with the correct resources and capacities to manage these effects of climate change in the first place. And so Dr. Emily also discussed how Indigenous communities are disproportionately affected by climate change just purely based on the just the geographical makeup of their communities and where they're situated and she talked about how her community in northeastern Tasmania in particular have been watching the rising tides with a great level of concern and with just this an overwhelming sense of uncertainty. One of the panellists, Kato Muir, criticised the government for cherry-picking Aboriginal knowledge and insights. So what are the, some of the things that have been overlooked by governments? So the way that Mr Muir described this cherry-picking process was that Western science and its related institutions approach Indigenous communities from a purely rational domain. Whereas the Indigenous First Nations people come to uh, these conversations from a very much cultural and spiritual basis. And so this kind of knowledge of oral histories, of dreaming, the complex interwoven relationship that Indigenous peoples have with land and embrace land are just not exactly fitting to the rational domain, uh, so Mr Muir says. And having those spiritual and cultural conversations on the ground, that's just not happening as it is. These industries aren't approaching with the wholesale respect that these Indigenous communities deserve when it comes to acknowledging things like the dreaming and uh, totemic relationships with the land and um, just having a legitimate cultural and spiritual exchange because that's just not how industrial Western minds work, according to Mr Muir. 
And sadly, this will mean that there will never be such a level of comprehensive understanding of Indigenous land management knowledge. And overall, this has led to what he described as a bastardization of Indigenous cultural knowledge and insight. We can know all the scientific facts about climate change, but you're right, until we have a bit more of a, if not spiritual, at least emotional connection to this issue, we're never going to reach the, the level of urgency that we need to respond to this issue. But it is an emergency that, that everyone uh, needs to respond to. Um, and I think a, a point that the panellists were also making is that it, it's not as if there would be one Indigenous answer. In fact, the response to climate change in Australia would be varied. It would respond to the, to the local environment and it would react to what's happening in those spaces rather than offering big umbrella fixes. Absolutely. And that's definitely an issue, if I may, um, that uh, Dr. Emma Lee, coming from Tasmania especially, was a very, very interesting, just a, a difference of opinion and difference of perspective um, from Western Australia, which is where Mr. Thompson and Mr. Muir are from. And she especially spoke of how something like native title and land management just doesn't really fit a one, it's not a one size fits all solution when it comes to managing climate change because of the sheer plurality and diversity of experiences uh, that community, Indigenous communities bring to a climate change conversation. And this is something that I think the government's very reticent to engage with and approach purely based on the fact that there are so many different voices that can contribute to this conversation. And I think they, from the rational perspective that I think Mr Muir is alluding to, they prefer to have a uniform, singular approach to uh, any issue. Makes for easier policy making, that's for sure. <laughs> but when we do hear about Indigenous knowledge and climate change, it's often around fire management. Um, coming off the back of the Black Summer fires, are policymakers paying more attention to Indigenous bushfire management? So Mr Muir, uh, he referred to bushfires as being our friend, uh, quote unquote. And this is where Indigenous peoples bring a whole thousands of years of history into something like a natural disaster mitigation um, uh, response. But if we're looking at just last year's uh, Royal Commission in the aftermath of the Black Summer fires, the final report was over 500 pages long and only 10 of those pages were dedicated to Indigenous land management and its role in mitigating bushfires. Indigenous experts are have expressed frustration that they are just not being listened to in, bu in bushfire management across the nation, despite bringing thousands of years of knowledge and insight into this area and this practice. Emily emphasised that relationships are really central to climate change. I really liked this story that she gave about a love-in um, at a Liberal Party office 
emphasizing that for her, Indigenous sovereignty and recognition is as much a part of this issue as, as the science. Can you speak a little bit about how relationships are important here? I think Dr Lee's discussion around relationships was particularly, uh, it was quite compelling in the sense that it was a very much uh, moving away from how we can see this as a structural issue, but kind of approaching this from a more human emotional angle and how using, I think she spoke of, and she did speak of using the next generation as our greatest resource. And for her, and I believe the rest of the panel, this is particularly telling in the sense that in order to have things change and to build better relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples in Australia, we need to start seeing this as an evolutionary thing and not as something that can just be changed overnight. And that, in a sense, is the very foundation of building better relationships and improving our national framework in response to something like climate change. This is The Yarn on Radio Fodder. I'm Fia Walsh and my guest is Harry Sekulich. Let's turn now to a bit of a behind the scenes look at your reporting process, Harry. So climate change and native title are both pretty big and complex topics. In your reporting, how do you distill an hour of experts talking um, about these complex issues into a short news story that works for the public? Well, it certainly isn't easy because you're totally right. These are huge areas with uh, lots of, uh, there's a lot of background, a lot of knowledge and a very much interesting things that I think are just so important to uh, deliver to the public. I think when we're coming to climate change though, I've found that the best way to approach any new story because you can easily get bogged down in talking about science, which as important as that is, um, you want to make it as palatable and as engaging as possible. And I think that's where you have to really bring in your, your audience and you've got to say, well, you know, what, what do they care about? And what is, you know, on their minds perhaps? And I think that's where this panel were very much adept in talking about Yukon Gorge because last year that dominated headlines and that was a huge, huge moment in Australian political history. And I think acknowledging that and knowing that uh, your audience and your, uh, the rest of Australia, well, to the best of Australia, <laughs> will know about this and will engage with this, uh, I think it's just really important. And yeah, native title is definitely a. It is certainly a very complicated um, topic, and yeah, it's once again something that I have to come from knowing that I don't inhabit a cultural space in my day to day life where I can speak from personal experience, and I think that's where um, it's really worth listening to more and more people and to engage with 
as many perspectives as possible, which is not the most straightforward fact gathering and information delivering process, but it's a really important one. And I think it's one that I think every journalist uh, needs to uh, go through with when they're reporting on things that are outside their own cultural space. Yeah, I guess as we hear more and more about the importance of um, recognising your lived experience um, as influencing your work, it might be difficult as a non-Indigenous person to write about Indigenous issues. But with climate change affecting us all and Native title and Indigenous rights affecting all Australians, it is important for all journalists and all audiences to be able to read and write these stories. Absolutely, and uh, much sad that that level of engagement, I think that's where I'm subtly a bit more optimistic, I think, than some other people in the sense that, you know, there's just no turning back to ignorance anymore and there's no turning back to ignoring these issues and ignoring just how important they are for, as you say, all Australians, but particularly arriving at this pop, at this, at these stories from a place of being non-Indigenous and engaging with Indigenous voices and perspectives. I think there's just, as I said, there's no turning back. Where can our audience read your stories and find more of your work? So I'm currently working on a uh, social media project to deliver more environmental stories to particularly younger people. Um, and that's on my Instagram as eColumn. And I'm on Twitter as harry.sec, very inventive, <laughs> very creative with my name there. And I'm also writing stories uh, as regularly as possible for The Citizen. Harry, it's been great to have you on the program. Thank you for having me, Thea. To read Harry's story, Call for Reforms to Empower Indigenous Knowledge in Climate Repair, please go to thecitizen.org.au. Big thanks to Mark Yin and the rest of the Radio Fodder team, particularly Rose Gutsakis, for our graphic design. My name is Fia Walsh. See you next week.